This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we're interviewing Dr. Rick Toomey, Cave Resource Management Specialist and Research Coordinator at Mammoth Cave National Park in South, Car- South Central Kentucky. He's also the Parks Endangered Species Coordinator. His training is as a vertebrate paleontologist studying recent fossil mammals and what they tell us about changing environments. He's been a researcher at Mammoth Cave National Park since 1994. Rich did his underground work from Brown University at Brown University, and he holds a Ph.D. at the University of Texas at Austin. His work in the park requires him to function as a geologist, a hydrologist, a cave biologist, and a paleontologist. That's a lot together. Cave, he does cave mapping in Puerto Rico and Ecuador, as well as in Kentucky. So, Rick, welcome. It's great to be talking with you. Great to be talking with you. Okay, so we're talking today about Mammoth Cave National Park. Tell us about the park. When was it discovered? Well, the park has been inhabited for over 11,000 years, but the cave itself, the cave, we, we know people started visiting the cave and exploring the cave 5,000 years ago. And they continued to go in the cave and uh, utilize the cave until around 2,200 years ago. Then for some reason, they seem to have cut down on their activity going in the cave. And then European Americans sort of rediscovered the cave sometime in the 1790s. So... The cave's been used for millennia. Oh, yeah. What was the history? Uh, how did it become a park? It became a park. It was proposed as a park in 1926 uh-huh. as part of legislation where uh, Congress was noting they had this cool new National Park Service, and they had some really interesting parks, but they were all out west, and people were living in the east, so they needed some parks in the east. Uh-huh. So. The commission looked and said, hey, Mammoth Cave might make a good park. Huh? So it, it was approved, and it was purchased. It was all private land before Mammoth Cave. So it was approved, and private land was purchased, first from willing sellers, and then there was actual use of eminent domain. And it was finally all the property was purchased that was needed to become a park, and it was established in 1941. Was it used by indigenous people before Europeans arrived? Oh, absolutely. We have archaeological sites from the last 11,000, 12,000 years, and the caves, as I said, were were used uh, extensively by Native Americans between 5,000 years ago and about 2,200 years ago. Uh Uh-huh. When uh, Europeans uh, came into the area, where what tribal group was occupying the area then? That's actually a sort of poorly known oh. set of information because a lot of Kentucky was seems to have been a hunting ground for a number of tribes: the Cherokee, the Shawnee, 
Chickasaw, but uh-huh. it's not clear who might actually have been living there. It was sort of a somewhat of a no-man's hunting land uh-huh. with tribes utilizing it, as far as I understand, but that's not my, I, I'm really not a cultural resource person. Yeah, right. So how large is the park, and what kind of terrain is there? The park has approximately 53,000 acres, and it's mostly mid-south hardwood forest. It has a few barrens. That's the local Kentucky name for what we would call a prairie or a savanna. We have some small barrens, and we have 31 miles of the Green and Nolan Rivers. And then we have a bonus landscape, which is actually the original primary reason the park was created, which is the cave system. Uh-huh. So we have a very large cave system, the Mammoth Cave System. It's got 426 miles of mapped passages. And this is currently the world's longest mapped cave in the world. And then in addition to that, we have on the order of 500 other caves ranging from parts of a 119-mile-long cave system to caves that are only a few body lengths long. would also note the Mammoth Cave is a World Heritage Site, as well as the core of an international biosphere region. So those are separate caves. They're not, they're not connected, is that right? So you have a number of caves yeah. within the park area. Yes, yes, we have around 500 caves in the park area, We have one really large one, the Mammoth Cave System, and then we have 500 other caves uh, sprinkled around along our landscape, and uh, and they range from very large to just quite small. But even the smallest ones may have important cave resources in them. So uh, you uh, you have tours inside the large mammoth cave, right? But do you have yeah, any? Uh, we do you have any other of uh, the caves open to the public? Yeah, we we have around eleven and a half miles of the mammoth cave system that is open for tours, and we have about a mile of one of our small caves called Great Onyx Cave open to the public, and we had, we just this past year opened a third small cave to public tours called Wondering Woods Cave. And all are all the caves um, etched out of limestone? Most of our caves are limestone caves. They've been dissolved out of some very pure limestones that are about 330 million years old, and they form a plumbing system that moved water from an area called the sinkhole plain to the Green River. And they've been doing that for, oh, 10 million years. Mm. So they've developed a very complex set of caves in the area. We do have a few sandstone caves or talus caves that are sort of large rock shelters, but that have some uh, a little bit of depth to them, those become very important both as archaeological sites and at least one of our bat species tends to use these rock shelter caves, these sandstone caves, quite extensively, both for or mostly for uh, maternity roosts. 
And do some of those caves wander outside of the park boundary, underground? Yes. As a matter of fact, about a quarter of our 426-mile-long cave system is located outside the park boundary. The next two of our largest cave systems will have all of their entrances off of the park, but have passages that come onto the park. And you have to get down to the fourth longest cave in the park before you get something that is completely inside the park, and that's a seven-mile-long cave. Wow. What's the temperature in those caves? In general, the cave temperature is approximately the mean annual temperature in our area, so about 55 degrees Fahrenheit, although there are areas near entrances that are cold traps and get significantly colder, like in the winter, maybe 40, 45 degrees Fahrenheit, some of them even down into the 30s. Those become very important because they act as that hibernacula often. So is the surface area as well as the underground area, are they, are they regarded as a unified ecosystem or are they regarded as separate ecosystems? Oh, no. The, the, the surface, the, our surface ecosystem and our subsurface ecosystem are incredibly and importantly linked. Uh, they are linked by, they, they are linked by uh, airflow coming, coming in and out of the caves. They are linked by water flowing from the surface, sinking into the ground, and coming into the cave. And then they are linked by the biology, where animals like bats and cave crickets live in the cave parts of the year, or, well, bats live in the cave parts of the year, or cave crickets live most of the time in the cave, but both bats and cave crickets come out of the cave to feed. They go out feed on the landscape, they come back into the cave, and they deposit guano that serves as food for the entire cave ecosystem. So they, they end up going out shopping to bring food back into the cave, because the cave have no light, so there's no plant growth, so someone has to go and bring food in if no food is being produced right. in the cave. So let's talk about surface wildlife first of all. Uh, What's the diversity of wildlife that's found on the surface? Mammoth Cave has a fairly diverse surface ecology. I'll start with our really diverse surface ecology, which which is the Green River. The Green River is one of the more biodiverse rivers in North America. The Green River has about 150 species of fish. 87 of those species are known from the reach in Mammoth Cave, Mm -hmm. and there are three endemic species of fish in the Green River, and I believe all of them do occur in the park as well. And if that's not enough biodiversity, we are one of the most worldwide biodiverse streams for freshwater mussels. Historically, there were over 70 species known from the park. Currently, we have about 54 that still occur in the park. We have 11 that are listed as endangered, federally endangered species, three that are listed as threatened, and one more is proposed for as threatened. But this is approximately the third most 
muscle uh, river in in the world, the clinch and the duck being just a bit more diverse than the Green. Uh, the, the Green River flows and, into what, the Tennessee River? The Green River flows directly into the Ohio the, uh, River. Oh, I see. Okay. And then we do have a very diverse terrestrial fauna as well. We've got at least 23 species of terrestrial mammals and possibly 15 additional that may be here or may not be here. And then we've got 13 species of bats, eight of which regularly utilize the cave in the area. We've got around 200, we've got 211 species of birds, reptiles, around 35 species of reptiles, 14 species of frogs and toads, and 16 species of salamanders. So we've got a nice, diverse, southeastern terrestrial fauna. Are any of those uh, those animals or birds uh, on the endangered species list? Three of the bats are actually currently listed as endangered. The Indiana bat, the gray bat, and the northern long-eared bat, and the tricolored bat is currently being evaluated, is proposed for listing as endangered, and the uh, little brown bat is uh, is currently under review, mm. and will probably be proposed uh, for some kind of listing sometime fairly soon. Do you have any predators? None of our predators are listed as endangered. Our our largest predators are coyotes and bobcats. Ah, okay. So uh, what kinds of reptiles do you have on the surface? We have about nine different types of lizards. Various skinks are the ones we see most commonly. We've got 22 species of snakes, ranging from size from, from worm snakes to larger things like rat snakes, uh, racers. We have two venomous snakes, uh, eastern timber rattlers, and... Uh, copperheads, and then we have a variety of turtles. We have box turtles and then a variety of uh, turtles more associated with the streams or ponds, snapping turtles, sliders, scooters, those types of more aquatic turtles. I think you uh, mentioned centipedes and millipedes. Are there any of those that are unique to the park? Well, centipedes and millipedes, we do certainly have terrestrial ones, none that are surface ones, none that are unique to the park, but we do have several millipedes that are in our cave fauna. Mm-hmm. We have a very diverse cave fauna. We have 49 species that are cave limited. They are only found in caves, no other places, and they spend their entire life in caves. Of those, 33 of them were originally described from Mammoth Cave. So Mammoth Cave is both a incredibly biodiverse cave fauna and has been studied for almost 200 years. So people have really studied the cave fauna here. And that's just the 49, and that includes some interesting things like a couple of species of millipedes that are only found in the caves. In addition to those 49 species that are only found in the caves, 
There are 160 species that regularly occur in the caves. And those are things like the cave crickets, which live in the caves but feed outside the caves, bats, which live in the cave but feed outside the cave, but also common things like raccoons that will utilize the caves or wood rats that will utilize the caves. And I think you told me uh, one point three. you have some eyeless fish. Yes. Of those 49 species that only live in the cave, 17 of them occur in the water. Those are aquatic species. And the highlight of them is actually our endangered Kentucky cave shrimp. It's a little shrimp about an inch long, has no eyes, no pigment, long antennae. But then with that, there are also two species of fish that are, have no eyes, have expanded lateral line systems for sensing in the dark, and then a couple of fish that occur both in the cave and sometimes out of the cave. We have a cave crayfish that is, again, completely cave-adapted. Uh, we have flatworms isopods, amphipods. We just have a variety of cave aquatic critters from small, say, a few millimeters on some of our uh, aquatic snails to the largest of those cave crayfish or cave fish, maybe, oh, three, four inches long. Mm -hmm. But they are incredibly important. So, we have the aquatic critters, and then we have a whole variety of terrestrial cave species that involve that are things like crickets, various kinds of beetles, mites, springtails, pseudoscorpions, spiders. Most everything in the cave, especially these cave-adapted things, are small. And part of the reason for that is, as I said, there's not a lot of food coming into the cave. The cave doesn't have a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. So you don't make giant animals that that take a lot of energy. Everything tends to be small. They tend to be relatively slow moving. They tend to be slow maturing, slow growth, and reproducing. For instance, something like our cave crayfish uh, may live 50 years and may not start reproducing until they're 25 or 30 years old. Uh, Would you like to tell us about uh, white-nose fungus that's affecting the bats? Sure. Yeah. One of the problems for our bats, and the primary reason that the northern long-eared bat is listed as uh, endangered and that the tricolored bat is proposed for uh, endangered status and that the little brown bat is being evaluated is a fungus. It's called, well, the fungus is called Pseudogymnoasis destructans. It's a invasive fungus. Apparently came from, uh, Europe, probably came from Europe. It's certainly found in Europe and Asia, but we think the, uh, the stuff that came to the U.S. probably came from Europe. It arrived in the U.S around 2005 and unfortunately was accidentally introduced into some bat colonies in upstate New York. Since that time, it has been expanding across all of North America. Most of Canada has it now and most of the United States. 
At this point, as of currently, the only states that haven't been shown to have this fungus are Arizona, Utah, Nevada, and Oregon. So it's managed to spread throughout the U.S. from when it arrived in upstate New York. And unfortunately, it kills many types of bats, some of them like the northern long-eared bat. The mortality rate with white-nosed fungus is something over 95, possibly 98 to 99% of the individuals are killed uh, when they have an outbreak of this. So it is devastating many of the bat species throughout North America, certainly at Mammoth Cave, but all throughout the country. I understand that it actually causes the bat to starve to death. It can. It turns out there are a number of ways that it can impact the bats, but it's impacting the bats while they're hibernating. Many of the North American bats are insectivores, and in the winter, you just don't have large numbers of insects flying, so the bats have to do something to make it through the winter. So in the summer and fall, they bulk up on, on fat, they eat lots of bugs, they create lots of fat, then they retreat into these caves and start hibernating, and that fat needs to run them all the way through the hibernation season. And unfortunately, this white-nose syndrome can cause them to burn through their fat more rapidly, and so they may starve to death before they make it through hibernation. It also causes lesions on the wings, it causes changes in their immune response, it causes blood acidosis, which causes them to have to wake up more often and hyperventilate to get rid of CO2. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of ways that it seems that it can kill the bats, but unfortunately, among all of them, it's doing a good job on killing a number of the species of bats. So they use the caves in order to uh, hibernate. Is that right? Many of our bats, like our little browns, our Indiana bats, our uh, big brown bats, utilize the cave for hibernating. But in the spring, they come out, they start using roosts in trees and buildings, and that's where their maternity colonies are. But there are also species like gray bats and raffinesque big-eared bats that will use the cave for hibernation, but they will also use usually different caves for maternity roosts. And so they will use one set of caves in the winter and another set of caves in the summer. And then there are bats like red bats and hoary bats and evening bats that never go in the cave. They live in trees during the summer. They will have their maternity colonies in trees. And then Some of them will migrate to Gulf Coast and winter at the Gulf Coast. Others will hibernate, but either in trees or with red bats, they actually hibernate in the leaf litter. And because they hibernate in the leaf litter, they are particularly good at handling cold temperatures. Red bats, actually, their body temperature can go just slightly below freezing. They have antifreeze properties that allow them to not form ice crystals that disrupt cells. They can't go very much below freezing, but they can go a little bit below. 
because they they are really really hardy because they they simply hibernate outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the bats have all sorts of different strategies, but many of the bats utilize caves as at least a portion of their strategy. Uh-huh. So, Rick, you've been in the park, in Mammoth Cave National Park, for nearly 30 years. Have you seen changes in the park and in the cave uh, over that period of time? Uh, we, I, we, I certainly have uh, seen changes. Uh, unfortunately, a number of them are associated with this white-nose outbreak. Mm-hmm. We had a number of large hibernation roosts that have uh, gone from, say, a thousand little browns and 800 Indiana bats to 30 of each. I've seen large decreases in a number of, of Indiana bats and little brown bats at a number of our sites. We've had. I've also seen one really, really amazing success story. Mm-hmm. We have a cave that had a poor closure on it, had a poor gate and door on it that restricted airflow and didn't let bats in. In the 90s, uh, the park uh, put on a bat-friendly gate and restored airflow to that cave, and we've gone from a low of a couple hundred bats in that cave to now we have close to half a million uh, gray bats hibernating in that cave and then also utilizing that cave for fall swarming, reproduction in the spring and fall before they head to maternity colonies in the summer. So that's been an incredible success story where by proper management of the cave, we turned it from a site that wasn't hosting very many bats but had in the past to now uh, one of the largest uh, bat hibernacula in the neighborhood. Do you expect that global warming is going to affect the future of the cave? We certainly are concerned that climate change will impact the cave Uh in a number of ways. As I noted, hibernating bats need colder areas in the cave. And as the winter temperatures go up, it's going to be harder and harder for uh, the caves to maintain these temperatures at low enough temperatures for the bats to hibernate well. Mm -hmm. So we may lose hibernacula because of warming temperatures. The caves also depend on Green River flooding, in the lower levels, areas like where the cave shrimp use, but changing frequencies of flooding, changing seasons of flooding may change what the temperature of the water is down there, and that, and we, we're not really sure of what the full tolerances of some of these aquatic critters are, so some of those things could impact the cave system. And we're working with a group out of the Climate Change Center at North Carolina State that's looking regionally at cave biology and cave temperature and humidity, trying to get a better sense regionally 
how the ecology links to the cave temperatures and humidity and how those may link to surface changes. Okay. Well, Rick, I think we've run out of time, but I really appreciate this. Uh, it's been very interesting. We ought to all make a trip down to Mammoth Cave and explore it. It'd be fascinating. I was there when I was a kid, but uh, that's been a long, long time ago. So thanks very well, much. Love to have you back. Our guest today. Love to have you back. <laughs> Our guest today is Major Rick Toomey. Uh, he's cave resource management specialist and the research coordinator at Mammoth Cave National Park in South Central Kentucky. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.